All right, I am here with the estimable 99. What's up? Estimable. Gloria mm-hmm. Estefanable. Yes. I feel like I haven't talked a lot today. My voice is like kind of still in the morning voice. It's okay. Yeah, just letting okay. you know. You sound like you. I don't know. I feel I feel it's like a little off, a little deeper, maybe more vocal fry. It's kind of cool though. As long as it's not like total and vocal like, talk fry. Like this and like I'm like just yeah. like literally Kim. Mm. That's my. Are you a Kardashian head? No. Okay. But they're everywhere. Like, yeah. I respect their hustle. How's that? Fair. You know, yep. they made themselves a brand and here we are. Yeah. But they are an industry. Women supporting women. Okay. But yeah, I'm not, I don't like know. Do you I don't mean, like the, the brother? Rob? <laughs> oh, do I know everything about them? Yeah, <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm a late 20 year old in 2023. I'm a person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I am following. I think him and Courtney aren't speaking right now. Oh, my. Well, they're God. sisters. It's upsetting to me. That is upsetting. Because apparently I watched a whole I got sucked into like a Reddit video of a woman talking about how Travis Barker in his memoir, like talked about how he was in love with Kim. Oh. But now he's married to Courtney and they're like having a baby Whoa. together. Whoa. I know. It's pretty salacious. That's uh, I think that's actually the. Pretty much the top news. That's all that's going on in the world right Aaron now. Aaron H right? is going to fucking kill me. It's <laughs> like, I asked you to stop talking about Taylor Swift and you do. And you start talking about Kim Kardashian. God help us all. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. So let's just dive in here. Uh, not that we can't return to the Kardashians. I'm sure we will multiple times. But uh, just a reminder that our new membership tiers are going to come out in December. So we've got Curious, Comrade, Professional, and Overcaffeinated. It's going to be a bunch of new benefits, and we're adding some heft and resources to the newsletter as well. So that's only going to be available starting with the Curious member tier when we switch everything over in mid-December. But if you're an existing member, you'll continue to receive it, and you'll get a lot of communication before everything changes, so uh, you don't have to do anything different. There will be a bunch of new features that we'll announce from a monthly hang with uh, Max and Friends, a sticker sheet subscription, new merch announcements, and so much more. So... Stay tuned for all those announcements. They'll be coming soon, probably in the newsletter and then through show notes. And then, you know, we'll drop a couple of other uh, announcements as we go. Quick, just question to the unfucking community. Glenn S. a couple of times shared kind of a troubling note saying that I still have to go in every couple of days and refollow the podcast. It's like Apple just doesn't want me to follow this particular show. It doesn't happen for any of the other podcasts I follow. Can anyone substantiate this in the UNFTR audience? Because it's not something that we've been able to replicate. Yeah, I mean, I hope it can't be substantiated, and it's just a Glenn. I want it to be a Glenn issue. Yeah, me too. I mean, so, not for you, Glenn. Yeah, but right. for us, because yeah. we're number one. Yeah, uh, Glenn S is uh, he's an important part of our our membership community, so we want to make sure that uh, you know that we're doing the right thing here. So maybe, let us know. Maybe a quick endorsement for Pocket Casts. Uh, is that is that your go to? Yeah, I thought it was yours too. It is. It okay. is. You know, I don't change things once I start. So. Yeah, I pay for the premium. So oh, I give snap. them fifteen dollars every year. Oh wow! It was ten. What do you get with that? I actually don't know. Uh, I think you get more storage, and I just like supporting the creator. Yeah, because like it's a completely free thing. I don't know how they make any money. Fair, except people like me. But that right. doesn't seem like enough. I didn't even know you could upgrade. I've never gotten a message from them. Let's Not see. a notice. Nothing, which is pretty amazing, actually. And if you go to the. Profile, and then I have a little gold ring around my name, and then settings. 
So you got a nice gold ring. Yes. Okay. They don't even tell me. Wait. Stats? So I guess anybody out there that's on Apple Podcasts, just, uh, you know, let us know. So my total since June 25th, 2021, I've listened to 61 days and five hours, um, which is, this isn't even how long I've been using this app. I remember when I dropped my phone on the toilet. Yes. So I had like, what, three years of listening. Yeah. Wow. This says during which time you could have tied 529,076 shoelaces. Which feels Are they trying to keep you as a member or tell you that you have a problem? Because I don't know how to tie my shoes. Um, I can only do bunny ears. Everyone makes fun of me. I mean, bunny ears gets it done. It gets so it done, it's, but it's like it's not, but not well. Huh. I make other people tie my shoes sometimes, but then I recently realized. <laughs> I recently was talking. You are such a capable person. I can't. I can't. Neither can my sister, and. I feel like that's a syndrome. We've told my mom, and she denies that she never taught us how to tie her shoes. But then I was telling my roommate something about how my dad only likes shoes he can slip on. Mm -hmm. Like, he'll walk on the back of them like a child, Mm -mm, you know? mm -hmm. And then my mom also refuses to wear shoes with laces. And I said, holy shit, this is a fucking conspiracy. Or it's genetic. What, that we all hate laces? That none of you can tie your shoes. I don't know if they can or can't. You know, I say this about my wife, like jokingly, because she's she's truly one of the most capable, brilliant people I know. But I'll joke that, you know, but she can't tie her shoes because she doesn't have a lot of common sense. Great. But she's brilliant. Maybe that's your issue. I, I, it's like I need to remember it to use as like a party trick. You know, like never have I ever like, oh, I don't know how to tie my shoes. But it's true. I can't like these aren't laced very well. If you can tell. But I mean, at least you're getting it done. Yeah, but I'll say that I can't get them like I want. I want them really tight, and mm-hmm. I can never get them tight enough. That's really. And so, I, like, I'll make other. People. I don't even know how to feel about any of this. If I'm being honest. But isn't that weird that they're making fun of me in my own app that I pay for mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. my house on my phone? When my wife sleeps, when my children come and play with their toys in my app. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what that means. Yeah. And I know exactly what that's from. And I'm not going to say that I don't, because Pastor Tim told me not to. <laughs> okay. Okay, so nonsense aside, yeah, <laughs> big shit going on in the world. So I'm going to save the commentary right now for what's happening in Israel and Palestine, because first of all, so much, I mean, so much is unfolding on a minute-by-minute basis. I don't know that we need to add anything into the into the atmosphere that is uh, because it's just so toxic right now. The only thing I'll share is just a, a quick anecdote that my my children are, are sentient beings. My eldest is uh, in college, much more informed about you know current events, historical events. This kind of leans into a direction that she's studying. Uh, so this is. So there's a lot more, she has a lot more context for what's going on right now. My youngest doesn't have much context for this. This is not her area of interest. And they've both been bombarded, obviously, by, you know, by friends and and family members or at their respective schools by, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And my, my youngest was actually going to, so they're Jewish. So my wife is Jewish. My kids are Jewish. You know, unfuckers know where I stand on all of that. Uh, and I, you know, I don't deny them any of their heritage or birthright or anything that they that they feel and they can discover their own path as they move forward in life. Uh, but my youngest felt 
the urge to share something, you know, about Israel, about standing with Jewish people. She's confused, I think, by anti-Semitism that she doesn't really experience. And, and maybe, you know, it's funny because maybe part of it is because they we live in a very, you know, predominantly Jewish area. We're New Yorkers. It's it's part of our lives and our culture that they ironically don't experience that much anti-Semitism. There's not a lot of casual anti-Semitism that goes about. And if anything, like you're, we've talked about your generation, that the next generation coming up has a much more, I think, ironic relationship with uh, things that tweak older generations. And they're able to kind of brush things aside uh, and not take them as personally. They haven't built up those, you know, whatever's in... Whatever's in our, you know, in all of us culturally, they haven't built up those walls of, of defense yet. And so now as they as they really enter the world, they're going to have to start to, you know, see things differently and, and experience things differently. So and I just caution them against sharing anything on social media. At the same time, I also caution them against following anything on social media because there's so many things right now being posted as fact that is not necessarily fact or it's just partial facts and half truths. So what we're going to contribute to it uh, next week is we're going to take a we're going to do a historical analysis of the conflict. It's something that I've actually been working on throughout the summer, but I was already kind of waylaid by the socialism series. So it's something that I've dipped in and out of because I wanted to take not a fresh take. There's no such thing as a fresh take on the conflict in the Middle East, but I wanted to take at least a perspective that I think unfuckers will appreciate about the nature of the conflict as it relates specifically to the work, some of the work that we've done. The trick is to do it dispassionately, I think, from our perspective. And I'm reminded of a friend of mine who is Israeli. He lives here. He has a, a family. Most of his family still lives in Israel. And when we were talking about the, uh, the fact that I was going to em- embark on maybe one or two or ten episodes about the conflict, he said, well, what can you? what kind of value can you add to this? You've never been there. You don't know what it's about. And that's true. But I also wasn't alive in, um, you know, Germany in 1888. And I think we still brought sort of an an effective perspective to try and get people to understand, uh, you know, circumstances that gave rise to events that are important and impacted history. So that's what I'm going to try to do next week. I think I have a pretty good line on it. Hopefully it resonates with people and helps provide at least some clarity but again, doing it dispassionately, I think, is is difficult. And there will be people that no matter no matter what facts are laid out or what historical context we try to give, will have very, very deep uh, feelings about this. You know, bef- before I casually move on, though, whatever space, whatever floor that you want, you know, obviously, as a, as a Jewish person and um, somebody that's probably also inundated and a member of your generation like how are you receiving this information right now and and and, and what's going on in your head um let's see <laughs> yeah i've been i feel like i've had a really hard time focusing like uh, more than usual but uh yeah i just keep you know i keep thinking about it and just part of it is that it's my people and there are so few of us but also palestinian people who don't deserve violence um, it's just really hard to see it happening and like we can't do anything about it. You know, I mean, I know our government is supporting Israel, but I know I, I'm actually pleased mostly by the takes I saw, you know, everybody posting about it, the non-political people, you know, eh, that's that's a different story of 
does everybody have to say something? Yeah. Like the Bo Burnham from um from inside when he's like, can everybody just literally shut the fuck up for one minute? So, but I understand why people do it. It's like people want to hear from people they follow. Um, and I, I've been mostly pleased by the, the takes of like, this isn't about like the governments. I mean, it's obviously about the government, but like we're just de- devastated by the loss of life, no matter who it is. And you know, commenting free Palestine on a Jewish account that is trying to mourn the loss of their people doesn't do anything because those Jews who are dead didn't incite violence. It's the same way, like, you know, we can't all, like, I as an individual can't be held responsible for the people we've killed as a country. I feel the weight of that as an American, but, like, I didn't do that, and I don't deserve to die for that, and neither do the Israeli people and the Palestinian people right now who are dying by the hundreds. So it's just been, it's been hard to not think about it. I, I, I try to compartmentalize usually as much as I can, but I don't know, this feels so, I mean, depraved is the wrong word, but it's, we're just so far from any resolution. There's no resolution in sight because there's no right answer is the way I'm feeling or the way I feel about it. So it's just like how many people are going to die? How many more Jews are going to be executed? It's really hard. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's all I can say really, I guess. One of the things that I struggle with is how much of what we're seeing in the immediate uh, is coming through a filtered lens from whatever like we don't have necessarily a great feel for news and reporting in in that part of the world and who to trust like it's so obvious to us here and we have our go-to sources and and that's fine so i've been i've been trying to kind of try kind of trying to to weed through the get away from the social posts and and even what people are sharing necessarily because it's like i almost don't trust anything right now but there is some good hardcore on the ground reporting that's happening. I'm just trying to sift through what I'm willing to trust and and what I'm, you know, what's what's verifiable. And a lot of that stuff, you know, comes after the fact, sadly. A lot of that stuff comes when the dust settles and the human rights organizations go in and they 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 tally the devastation and give a raw picture of it. Because right now, I mean, if you if you tune yourself into a Palestinian supportive narrative, you will see horrors and atrocities being committed against Palestinian people. Likewise, if you tune into an Israeli perspective that is predominantly coming through mainstream uh, Western lens, uh, and then a few outlets in Israel, you will be just shocked and horrified by you know gruesome, gruesome devastation. And it may all be authentic and it may all be true. The idea of asymmetrical warfare is something we're going to hear a lot about and have heard a lot about when it comes to these conflicts. What's interesting in the United States now is similar to what we talked about with the Bernie revolution of how it wasn't, you, you just didn't hear talk of socialism and polite company up until, you know, Bernie sort of like broke the doors open again and it was okay to start talking about that. Over the last decade, I think it has become more acceptable to talk about the conflict 
from a Palestinian perspective and a human rights perspective. And uh, and at, at the same time, it's become more treacherous to wade into these waters as a result because it's really served to harden you know, people on both sides. Like the, the rabbi that we, I think we quoted the rabbi who's, Oh, it, it was a book that we quoted in our the, the Black and Jewish Experience episode that, and he was talking about how the progressive mindset now is you you have to be all in against Israel or you are not a progressive. Like that is now the litmus test for where you fall on on that side of the aisle. And likewise, uh, you are are not a patriotic American somehow if you do not just express you know a hundred percent fealty to Israel. And so it's made it's made the discussion and the discourse really difficult to have, and that's why if we're going to do anything, we ha- I think we have to do we have to do it through the unfucking lens. We have to do it in the way that we approach things and try not to be you know just like I said, try not to be too passionate, uh, or else in this specific instance, I don't think that people that are in either camp are going to be able to really hear a different message about this. I think there there's going to be listeners who aren't going to be able to hear it regardless. Yeah. Because they just made up their mind. And whether it's rooted in anti-Semitism or innate anti-Semitism or I don't I don't really know, I guess. And also fatigue. Some people are fatigued by this conflict and just so angry that it's taken up as much oxygen and money and, and all of that. And I think, you know, there, some, there are people that are just like, this is this has been going on for hundreds of years. Fuck them, you know. Just that type of mindset as well. Uh, you know, we have homeless people on the streets. What do we give a shit? Like, there's some really, really callous takes out there. But you know, we have to. I think that's that's what makes this such a challenge. Is we do have to meet everybody where they are in a way that kind of resonates with them. The, my only goal by doing an episode on this and kind of like at least opening opening it up to the unfucking audience is contextual another piece of the puzzle as to how we got here and why things are the way they are and i think that's about the best that we can do Mm -hmm. you know yeah i just we don't need anything like pro-violence which is i don't think where we're gonna land no definitely not and absolutely that's where a lot of people are landing right now like yeah we don't need the rallies in times square i don't know if you saw Mm -hmm. and we don't know people going how many dead to to Jewish people or vice versa. Yeah. Like, we don't need any of that. We just, yeah, understanding, but there's just, <laughs> there's two sides to every story. And even if we find the story, mm-hmm. everyone has their side. Yeah. It's going to be tough. I, I I honestly, if I can be candid, I don't know that I'm looking forward to it for what, for afterwards. Is that okay to say? Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just... Because I know we're going to have discourse, which is healthy and good. Mm-hmm. And that, but, but hearing, hearing an unfucker write in and just definitively be like, no, Israel's wrong, period. Mm-hmm. They did this themselves. What's happening is their fault. And that's what happens in war and people die. Like, I don't know if I can emotionally withstand that yeah. type of feedback. You know, there, I, I, I haven't heard this anywhere um, in, in these specific words. What keeps rolling around in my head when it comes to any sort of, um, I'll call it uh, colonial or imperial activity, this is what you get does not equal this is what you deserve. 
And so we, we, I think we can look at the circumstances on the ground to understand why it, this came to pass in such a violent eruption so that we can better understand how, how each side is dug in while bringing in what our role is as the United States, what the role of the Arab nations has been. There, there are geopolitical factors. There are economic factors. There are strategic military factors that all weigh on this very, very small part of the world that need to be, I think, again, explored and contextualized. Like so much of this has been manufactured and it's such a slow moving disaster that I think most people could see coming because people have been talking about this for so long. But when you're really, when you're just awakened with such reprehensible violence, it makes it all of a sudden emotional and the the buildup doesn't matter and the context doesn't matter and the nation building doesn't, it just doesn't matter when you see children dead. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And it's not insignificant that it occurred on a holiday Mm -hmm. where they probably had their guard down, literally, slightly. I mean, I don't know that the IDF ever has their guard. Well, they did technically, I suppose. And that's, you see, okay, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, so one of the narratives, one of the takes right now is that the reason that they're calling for it a failure of intelligence is because uh, the IDF forces under this now renewed extreme uh, Netanyahu administration had moved its in- intelligence and resources to the settler communities and, quote, taken their eye off the ball. But to your point, the, the IDF doesn't take its eye off the ball. The Mossad doesn't take its eye off the ball. The I think the intelligence community knows what it knows. It's hard for me to imagine that there wasn't some sort of understanding of what was to come because you're talking about coming, you know, an, an attack that came out of a territory that is so tightly, closely managed that, and I'm not being conspiratorial, I'm just saying that, like, this is the difficulty in trying to pick apart a narrative that is current because it's going to change so fast. And anytime there's such, such just incredible devastation, it will supercharge everybody's you know version of whatever story is prevailing in their own mind so um again it's that's not where we want to live uh, as unfucking the republic i take my friend's advice to heart that you know this isn't a current conflict that we should really be weighing in on because we're not there but also there there is a historical analysis and a perspective that we can bring to the table because specifically because of the type of work that we have done in defining conflict, regimes, economic, military, cultural, and social circumstances. And then recognize that even with all of that and all of the historical analysis that we can bring to the table, this is a this is still the most unique situation that can present itself on the planet. So anyway. We'll get there. Just know that we'll take great care in doing it. And, um, you know, I don't I don't think we have to caution listeners to to be as responsible in their responses, because that's who our community is. I imagine that as we broaden outside and, and new people get wind of, of whatever episode that is that haven't come on this journey with us, they may 
have a different take like, oh, you're leaving so much out. What about this and what about that? There's going to be a lot of what about isms in whatever analysis we bring to the table. That, that's the underlying of all of this is yep. it's constantly everything is what about. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. Other quick news. Robert Kennedy Jr. is an independent. So is Cornell West. The independents are, are gathering steam. How not interesting is this whole development? <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Well, it's a little, I mean, it's not great for us that he is running as an independent. Uh, Democrats, I think, are, are breathing a, a sigh of relief because there's a feeling that he is going to take more because of how he has been portrayed uh, as like a champion by the conservative media because they they wanted to chip away. They wanted to chip away at the margins during a primary battle between to, between him and uh, and Biden. That now that all of the narratives that they've been pushing and promoting about vaccine conspiracies and lockdowns and 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 his kind of bizarre foreign policy takes and things like that are now going to come back and bite them in the ass because they actually wound up resonating with people on the far right that now might see him as an alternative and he may steal more from Trump than what he might steal from a Biden. I, yeah, I guess I was thinking of the people who might have agreed with him who dislike Trump more than they like Biden. So like would have been like if he got the nom, you know, would have been like, oh, that's great. But now, you know, that could take some people because they're we know people who get weird about the vaccine thing could be a huge there's plenty of quote unquote liberal or what they would I th liberal is the wrong word granola mm -hmm. <laughs> like granola people who aren't on the right but mm -hmm. might agree with some of that stuff that could take away stuff like votes from us yeah. I was thinking from that angle. Trump invented the vaccine Biden distributed the vaccine at least this guy's got his head on straight sure. yeah kind of yeah. so like that could have been some extra people for us yeah I, I do feel like in the MAGA group though there was uh there was a lot of like underlying like, yeah, that guy, too. He's awesome. More so more so than the than the liberal establishment, certainly. But what you're what you're saying about at least I like him more than Biden and fuck Trump is is certainly that's going to be a factor. I don't think it's I don't think it's a one for one. I don't think it's like all of a sudden he's just going to take from, you know, from Trump. There's yeah, certainly what if he be wins? Pieces. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> that would be wild. That would be wild. That actually brings us nicely into uh, our first headline. Can I just say, though, Cheryl Hines's first lady is literally a Kirby enthusiasm. Like, did Larry um, David write that? How many how many memes have you seen with the with the Kirby enthusiasm music every time they fuck something up? Honestly, not many. No, I don't think people are making the connection that they're married. Oh, she doesn't, okay. They don't really appear together. Because she's probably fucking embarrassed. She's like, shit, <laughs> well, she I, was, thought I, I thought I married Kennedy. <laughs> she was at the announcement and uh, there was some great stuff because his announcement was flubbed as it usually is. The teleprompter was upside down. There's a whole bunch of things Jesus. and it just pans to her and then the music cues. That's good. Pretty awesome. Uh, but that doves, dovetails nicely into the first headline, which is actually about the current establishment. The New York Times Magazine published an exhaustive piece on Kamala Harris. And the writer, I think his name is Esteed Herndon, I believe, uh, appears pretty like ready and willing to clear the air about the mystery surrounding the, you know, the ever shrinking and disappearing vice president. But also then comes away frustrated and seemingly more unclear about who Kamala Harris is or what she does all day. 
this piece is is a terrible look for the VP. I mean, a terrible look. It's also, as the New York Times Magazine profile pieces are, massive. So, I mean, it's a it's a good half hour read if you're going to sit down and get through it. And you will come away, I think, not knowing a whole lot about who Kamala Harris is. And if anything, you're going to come away with an impression that I don't think I want this person in the chair, in the seat. I, I really don't. There's so many flies in here. What's going on? I think it's just one. Is it just one? I brought in me? a machine. Did you see it? No, I didn't. When did you put it in? An hour ago. Oh, okay. Because the, over the last few days, they've they've kind of diminished a little bit, at least in the kitchen. No, I put I my my sister had a fruit fly invasion at her house once because of flowers that just like brought them in mm. and they never left. Mm. So she had this machine that's supposed to kill them. Okay. And so I brought it in. humanely. Yeah, it humanely sucks them <laughs> in and then they get stuck. Okay. I don't know that the little fruit flies have brains though. That like oh, okay. I mean don't make me don't make me feel bad about I, I won't I won't. There I won't. was an ant me, on won't, my I'm laptop out. the other day. And I threw him on the ground because I didn't want to kill him. But then I saw him suffering. So I had to kill him. I felt really bad. And I was like, why did I do that? Wow. Go away. <laughs> so here's a uh, here's a, an excerpt from the article. Quote, a top Democratic consultant said that she has a little Ron DeSantis in her in terms of the okay. disconnect between. Why would he write that? Between political talent and expectations. One major donor said that there's an agreement among the party's heavy hitters that having Harris as vice president to Biden, quote, is not ideal, but there's a hope that she can rise to the occasion. Sometimes the arguments against her feel more petty. A member of Harris's staff remarked on the amount of downtime the president schedules on trips, which includes an inordinate amount of time dedicated to hair care, end quote. Okay, uh, that feels that feels misogynistic. Uh, that's why yeah, it says petty. Yeah, it, it, and that's somebody on her staff. Though, okay, sorry. Remarking. I thought he, I, I zoned that wasn't out for him. a second. I was still thinking about, does he not know that pickup line? Do you have a little blank in you? Would you like some? <laughs> like, he, right. well, yeah. you can't write that. Um, this is, uh, I, I mean, maybe it should be noted that the New York Times is the liberal establishment mouthpiece, is very much in support of a second term for Biden. I think is all in on the fact that Kamala Harris is and should be the vice president. And, you know, if anybody is an actuary in the group, you'll recognize that there's a better than fighting chance that she could ascend to the presidency if they're victorious again. So this is, a Dem you know, a, a New York Times writer doing this profile piece. You can read very clearly how he struggled through the piece, starting out wanting to be like, well, this could be the redefining moment and then ending with her her responses to him verbatim are really difficult and really testy and she did not want to be pushed or challenged on anything and as he said it's like she kept channeling her inner prosecutor in response to whatever questions he put out there and it should be also noted that he is an african-american reporter is he he came into this i think looking for looking for ways to promote so, something that didn't make it feel like it was tokenism. So he he spent a lot of time talking about the decision to name Kamala Harris after a disastrous run for the presidency and coming out with almost zero percent, you know, in in the polls to actually, you know, being the one that was selected, despite the fact that she had like the least amount of experience of anybody that was in in the pool. It felt like he was trying to do her justice 
and she just wasn't having it. And so you actually don't, you really don't learn anything about her. But I'd love for people to read this piece if they get a chance and to let us know what you think about it, because, you know, the title In Search of Kamala Harris, it uh, just kind of wound up being an ellipsis at the end of it. I don't think we ever found out. Hmm. So interesting article. And then the uh, the other one I wanted to share is from the Jacobin. This is from Ben Burgess talking about how left politicians are showing. This is the title. Left politicians are showing how to respond to the horrors in Israel and Palestine. So he's highlighting the responsible public responses of uh, Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush specifically to the unfolding crisis. Mentions a deleted tweet from Tony Blinken that actually seems a little both sidesy, like the atrocities in Palestine need to end now. And then he deletes the tweet and obviously gets on message with the rest of the Biden administration. Militant pronouncements from people like J.D. Vance, declarations of war crimes from Israel's defense minister who referred to uh, all Palestinians as animals and said that we're going to take them out. So the reactions are very are obviously primal, like we talked about, and they're just coming from all corners of the world and every vantage point. But Burgess talks about the progressives who are the ones getting it right. So here's a little excerpt. Quote, more broadly, why would you be a socialist or an internationalist in the first place if you didn't think all human beings were born with the same moral status, regardless of their citizenship, ethnicity or background? The whole point is that everyone deserves to live with freedom, dignity, material security and democratic rights. Bush and Tlaib made the perspective perfectly clear in their statements, end quote. Uh, so I actually noted that Burgess is one of the uh, one of my obsessions of late. He was a collaborator with um, the late Michael Brooks. They, they did a lot, work, a lot of work together. I've seen him on Majority Report. He's been on Left Awakening. He's, he's kind of all over the place. I think he hangs his hat at the Jacobin mostly. He might also be a professor. Uh, but he comes at things from a, from a Marxist perspective, and, I'm, I, and I really value his input. So, again, coming out of the uh, of our uh, socialism series, I feel like it's important to, from this point forward, to include voices from progressives that that represent the democratic socialism wing of the party, because I think that you know that's that's the area that we've most aligned with. Anyway, so those are the two headlines that we're sharing. There's uh, a couple more uh, coming out in the newsletter that uh, we'll draw your attention to, but that will come out shortly. And uh, with that, why don't we get into some emails? The first is uh, specific to the socialism finale. So this is uh, just jumping around a little bit. Most of the comments that uh, were about the, uh, the last episode came in on YouTube or social media. So uh, this email is about socialism. So Sherman D. said, wow, great finish. This was definitely a welcome journey. I am, in essence, a professional Facebook troll that best communicates via memes and sarcasm. I tend not to post much in the at all group because all I know is troll speak and that feels out of place. How do you respond to people who call progressives Marxists or communists? People who call helping anyone socialism? This is the default argument of MAGA chuds for anything they don't like. It's like, I know how I want to answer, but maybe Facebook has broken my brain and I have difficulty getting my thoughts out in a constructive manner. In show notes, I was wondering if you could help with a few condensed thoughts that we could use as jumping off points, just like from earlier episodes on how to talk with conservatives, not to argue, but help them see our side. Love you all. Welcome back, 99. Manny is the goat. FMF. There you go. How do you respond? It's an interesting question because most people actually don't know Marxist theory, don't know how it differs from what we deem to be socialist theory and obviously getting too far into the weeds with a MAGA chud isn't going to be helpful. Honestly, I think the the answer is not to engage MAGA chuds at all with anything that is, you know, related to 
<laughs> related to political science. Um, but, to, you know, whatever the core issue might be that you're responding to rather than them just throwing things out is just to stay on topic with the issue, promote something that comes from a from a, a progressive or, or you know, a democratic socialist or social democrat perspective and use a lot of, in my experience, you know, I hear you and it's tempting to just, you know, downplay all of this. But in my experience, I found that X, Y, Z. And when you personalize your responses, unless they too are just trolling and and looking to destroy the individual and not the argument itself, when you personalize things and you, you bring in maybe a personal anecdote about something that you've seen or you've experienced, uh, or even pointing them into the direction of a resource that you've personally found helpful, if you personalize it, it makes it a little more difficult to attack. And if they do attack you, then I think you know the person you're dealing with and then you just move on. If you want to do a meme, you could do, is the is this a butterfly meme? And make it, is this an argument? That's good. Yeah. I like and that. And then just respond like that and walk away. Yeah. And then drop your mic. Exactly. Matt H said, uh, oh, it's my buddy Matt H from New York. I was listening to show notes for Understanding Socialism Part 6. Great series, by the way. Thanks, Matt. And add a couple of comments. If you're looking for a show to watch that isn't too heavy, easy to watch, super impactful, deals with complicated love, trauma, loss, and redemption, and with some violence, and oh, pirates, I highly recommend Our Flag Means Death on HBO. Wonderful series. So I know Matt H. really well, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, and uh, I take his recommendations very, very seriously. So thank you for that. If anybody else has seen it, let me know. I was just talking about it with my roommate. She wants to watch it. Seriously? Unrelated to this. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, Why? Um, Pirates? Um... I think, was that why? I don't know. I think we were just talking about shows to watch, and she said, I want to watch it. She does love Pirates, though. That's interesting. Ironically, loves Pirates of the Caribbean. Before you became roommates, did you know this about her, or is it why you became roommates? That she loves Pirates? Mm -hmm. I mean, she's not like, she doesn't have like a poster of Pirates, but like she just like kind of loves Pirate stuff. Did I know it? I don't think so, but you know, that's the beauty of marriage. Yeah. No, I get it. We're basically married. Yeah, I get uh, it. Yesterday I was petting Henry. We were watching TV and I was working. And I said, this is an ugly dog. I said, how do you how do you juggle it all? I said, I got my wife here, got my son. I'm working, having a family day. This is how I juggle it all. You are a modern woman. I am. Shattering ceilings, doing the whole thing, man. Exactly. Yep. I have a platonic wife. Turns out you can do it all, right? As long as you don't sleep and you worry about every everything that happens in the world. Yeah as well. Exactly. Cool. Elena from Mexico said on the Rachel Maddow show and discussing Elon Musk's take on Twitter, it appears he's following a right wing objective towards achieving the downfall of the American globalist empire. As a Mexican leftist, I would love to see the downfall of the American globalist empire also, but it appears to me that we're using the same terminology with two different meanings. To me, the term means the objective of U.S. capitalist, neoliberal or neocolonial corporate dominion over the entire planet. And then later she says, I'm concerned about this huge Tesla plant that Elon Musk is constructing in Mexico. AMLO seems to be happy about it because it will provide many jobs for Mexicans. But to me, it seems like a contract with the devil. Knowing what kind of person Mr. Musk is, it might be better to have nothing at all to do with him. I mean, we could talk about Tesla. We could talk about EVs. We could talk about, uh, you know, taking plants out of the United States, putting them in other places. Those are big enough issues on themselves. The fact that Elon Musk happens to be the head of the corporation to me actually is ancillary to the to the main story there, which is, are these the type of jobs that we want to create? Is this the type of company we want to continue to promote? You know, I mean, he's such a dick because 
makes such a big deal about moving to Mexico because, you know, he wants to get out of the United States and all the, you know. The, Not even American. The the country that literally fucking, you know, founded his company and, and made it what it is through subsidies and, uh, th- you know, through grants and write-offs. I mean, it's, an, it's amazing how much, how responsible for his success the U.S. government has been and how much shit he winds up talking about it. It's, it's, it's so chaotic. But if it's jobs and, uh, you know, it's coming to Mexico, I wouldn't worry that Elon Musk is, is, you know, the head of it. I don't think he has much to do with operations. He's too busy fucking up his other companies and, and just creating chaos at the top. Yeah, I see him as like they don't want him involved. I'm sure they don't. And and I see him. Although you know he did he did set in Tesla. He set the tone in all of his companies. He set the tone for how people are allowed to behave. Yeah, sleep which sucks. At your desk and um, work all night. Yeah, exactly. And like, and also you know just allow for racism and misogyny to run rampant and and not be punished. And you grooming. Know. He has the worst corporate culture imaginable. Uh, but at the same time, if you need better jobs in a future industry, then uh, then I think it's it's fine. But he's not going to be the head of it forever. It is what it is. I mean, I, he's I see him as just an as just an agitating shareholder more than I see him as like the person running the company. So I wouldn't be that's that wouldn't be the part of this story that I'm most concerned about. I would I would I'm interested in when we get to our transportation episode. Have you seen these cars, the Rivian? Mm-mm. If you Google it, it's a new, like a newer brand of electric cars. And like, you know, when you see a car in front of you, you're like, what the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. You know, because like, you know, all cars just by being on the road, you know, every car. Yeah. And it's just like this new brand that I'm seeing more and more. And I'm wondering hmm. if that's a rival to Tesla. If they're coming. A&M, you're up. Let us know. <laughs> they might be owned. I think I Googled it and they're owned by someone. Well, obviously. Yeah. Rivian. They're public. Mm-hmm public i don't know but yeah i feel like this is 13.5 billion following its ipo that's pretty significant right not bad so i don't know yeah let us know tell me tell me about this car Mm. oh i've seen that fucker yeah yeah i think i was mistaken for the bronco and it's not it yeah it does kind of look like it and they're they are like bigger i don't think i've seen a little one but it says its name really big on the back so if maybe you are stupid. But. Have EVs proliferated in the Midwest and Southern states as much as they have uh, in like the coastal areas? Where I wonder. Was, where did I go yesterday that there was like a fucking? Did I leave the house yesterday? Because we have charging. We do. We legitimately yeah. have charging stations fucking everywhere. That's now. where. That's where I'm wondering. I can't remember where I was that there was like. Oh, I was over the weekend when I was visiting my parents by like a grocery store, just one, and I'm like, how did this get here? <laughs> They they installed them in my building. Is I think it a I Tesla? told you. I don't specifically think it, or or I think it was a general one. In my building, like every spot in my building now in the garage has a charging port. Not one person in there drives an electric car. <laughs> I think it must have been a subsidy or something. Interesting. Yeah, probably. But um, probably. yeah, it's everywhere. Huh. And I'm going away next week. <laughs> I can tell you on Mike. I don't know if you remembered. <laughs> Do you remember that? that I'm away it's on next my calendar. Week? I know, but I wasn't sure and I was scared to remind you. Yeah. But we were trying to rent a car. I was like, what if we get an electric car? There's enough, you know, I don't know how to charge one, but I could figure it out, right? I assume so. Whenever, so whenever we travel for youth soccer, which I do frequently, there's always like a line of EVs that we can take out and I never do. I never do because I wouldn't know what to, and it's such a stupid fear because I know it's just a car and I'm sure I can figure out how to charge yeah. it. 
but I just haven't done it yet. Do and I'm like, do while it's I don't know. Like if something, if I, if I was in it, like an emergency situation, I just, I wouldn't know what to fucking do. And I'm like, I got two days here. I'm not going to spend half of it trying to figure out how to fucking charge a car, but I know it's just a stupid fear and I'll get over it. Also, why are, why are car rentals so expensive? Uh, because they can, I think is the answer. It's $500 for like four days. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And they're. Enterprise tried to charge me $150 because I want to drop it off at a place an hour away from where I picked it up. Yeah, maddening. I don't know what to do. Someone help. Someone give me a car if you live. (laughs) There you go. If you live out there where I'm going. In that place? Yeah, in the place where I'm going. I could say where I'm going. Can you? I mean, it's a big state. I'm going to California. I don't think anyone's going to find me. I'm going to, I won't wear you an FDR hat for sure. Okay. But uh, I will be in the LA and San Diego area. I won't tell you when. All right. So 99 has an audition for a movie. It's a third callback. She's next in line. It's going to be, I think it's opposite Zach Braff. I thought you were going to say Zach Efron. I got really excited. He's coming out with a new wrestling movie that looks amazing. Okay. All right. By the way, (laughs) my fucking mind is blown. This is like shit that most people are just like, yeah, dumbass. Uh, I don't know his name. Okay. It's the actor from The Bear. He was on Shameless. He's like yeah, a yeah. huge fucking star the now. Guy the guy with the, the guy blue who looks eyes, like young right? Gene Wilder. Because he's Gene Wilder's grandson. He what is? the fuck? Are you sure? I'm positive. That may, why is everyone acting like it's crazy that they look like then? I mean. Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure. My kids told it to me as a fact. They're like, he's Willy Wonka's grandson. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Snopes. It says it's unproven. Unproven. My man's a dead ringer. Is this not true? He's him. They haven't. Uh, they Gene haven't confirmed it. Grandson. I'm on Snopes. There is no proof of familial familial connection between the actors. Wilder has no biological children, and White, when publicly referencing the rumor, did not confirm or deny its legitimacy. Oh, it's annoying. I'm sorry. He's him. It's astounding. Gene Wilder, smash. <laughs> I love Gene Wilder. He was singular. Truly singular. Oh my God, this picture of him as an old man. Oh, I don't like that. He's so old. Yeah, I mean, you know, it happens. You hope. I mean, he still looks so cute. You hope it happens. I saw Patrick Stewart, a video of him. Patrick Stewart. And he looked really old and he was kind of like a little wobbly. Like not wobbly wobbly, but like an old man wobbly. And like I almost Mm. heard crying. Oh. He's not. I don't want people to get old. Oh, Picard. They just have to already be old. Don't quote Star Trek like you know you're talking about. I I saw him in uh, do Shakespeare, one man play in the city. And uh, at halftime. Halftime. Somebody. uh, So it's the. uh, What's the one? It takes place on a beach. Damn it. Much Ado About Nothing? Is that it? That's not a one-man play, though. There's, like, a bunch of people in it. He was doing a one-man play. Hamlet. Macbeth. Anyway, somebody... Not Macbeth. Somebody... King Lear. (laughs) Went up uh, in the middle of it, and then at halftime, whatever, and uh, wrote Engage on the stage in the sand. Oh. (laughs) Which I love. And, uh, And he had to, like, you know, just sort of, like, artfully, like, clear the sand away. How did no one notice someone doing that? I know. I don't know. I don't know. That's wild. Engage. And the best actor Oscar goes to Manny Faces. All right. Let's move on. Also Smash. Okay. Picard? Yeah. All right. Why not? And Spock. Oh. Also Smash. Really? 
Of course, Leonard Nimoy. He's Jewish. He's a homie. He. I watched a video my mom sent me that this. I have a spot connection, but I'd be revealing too much he, in a weird way. He learned this. He he saw it at Temple once. She's making the Vulcan live long and prosper symbol for yeah, those that can't that he, see her. He saw. They they know what I'm talking about. He saw um, them doing it in like a like they were in like a you know when they like huddle sometimes like Orthodox Jews I think he, he was or conservative I don't know what whatever and he said he learned that and then when he was Spock and the episode where he goes to his home planet I think it's like the one about <laughs> Max just checked the time I did he's <laughs> basically wrap it up with your Star Trek story. But whatever, he saw them doing it and then he told Gene Roddenberry or whoever like, hey, we should have a greeting. And then he did this and then it became a phenomenon. So rooted in Judaism. Every year we go to a place that he went for like 40 years. That that place? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Did you ever see him? No. Oh, because he only died fairly recently. Yeah, pretty neat though. His son's around. You might see him. Hmm. I think they look alike. I'm going to knock on the door. You should. Come Pardon on, me. knock on my door. Spock's been waiting for you. All right. John H., uh, and I'm confused by this one, said, In today's show notes, you referred to Friedman and Hayek as Nobel laureates. This is incorrect. Neither ever won a Nobel Prize. What they did win instead is the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in Memory of Alfred Nobel, which is not one of the Nobel Prizes, and instead is a prize created by the Swedish Central Bank in the 1960s, and which was deceptively named in order to create an impression in the listener of being a Nobel Prize in order to increase its prestige by association. Now, I love that. What I was confused by is when I looked this back up, because he's often referred to as Nobel Prize winning, you know, in his bios or or even in print, uh, in, in uh, you know, people writing about him, and Hayek for that matter, is that it is part of the Nobel institution, you know, whatever that is. But it is an outlier. So you've got like... What are the categories here? You've got physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, peace. And then economic sciences is the only one that has a, it's a prize in economic sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, 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 1976, Milton Friedman. But it's not like one of the core Nobel prizes. It's a participation award. It it kind of is. Yeah. And it feels like that. That's like, I don't know. Like, I'm shook by this whole thing, that it's not a real prize, but they sort of, like, wink at it. And they're like, yeah, we got paid a lot of money for this, so we're just going to include it, but not. It means you won. Yeah. Now you, you're you not taking on Nobel laureates. Yeah. Nobel laureates. Man. So anyway, I'm shook and I'm confused. But John H., thank you, you for that it. for that reference. That That is deep. It's a deep cut. Shook or shooketh? Shook. Not shook AF, but. No, shooketh. Shooketh. Oh, I thought you say shook as fuck. No, like no. shook. I'm shooketh. Shooketh. Uh, if we were still talking about Picard, yes, maybe I was shooketh. <laughs> well, speaking of shooketh, mm-hmm. which every time, Mark Vonnegut, you know, the physician, author, and medical advocate, and friend of the pod, and son of a person, sent a picture of him wearing a MAGA hat, but not actually. And instead of saying MAGA, it said "Make him go away," and his hat is popular. <laughs> I love it. He's just a, my head is popular. Love Mark. <laughs> Amazing. Like, so surreal. Uh, ND wrote in regarding the strike episode saying, I'm a huge fan of the show. I especially love the series on the history of socialism this summer. I did want to comment about your episode Strike. The recent work stoppage by the WGA and SAG-AFTRA affected hundreds of thousands of additional people. 
I'm a member of the IATSE, and many of us were forced out of work for the past four months. The strike was fundamentally about residuals or royalty payments, which the majority of us have never and will never receive. It's been a hard pill to swallow, especially being told that it was all, quote, for us. Maybe it's to your broader point that this is not a labor movement. The strike wasn't even for the benefit of all workers in this one industry. ND, thank you for that personal and very direct comment. Nobody has more agency in that discussion than you do, so I appreciate you calling that out. And just a reminder that um, we're still talking about rounding errors. And as the as the auto workers strikes, you know, undoubtedly wrap up, you know, within the next several weeks or months or whatever. But there are different walkouts happening like every day. Yeah. And strategically so. We actually have a listener who kind of calls out this strategy here in that they're not really bringing any productions to halt by doing so. No, I meant just other industries. Like other industries. I've been seeing like, yeah. I feel like every day it's a new industry striking or talking about striking. It's still so, so marginal compared to a general strike or, or what people are calling for. But but yeah, I mean, there, there's fallout from, from this that impacts the workers as well in all of the ancillary and supporting industries for the main ones that, that walk out. But it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be walkouts and strikes. It's tough. It, it's tough. I mean, the workers are in, in, in such a brutal, brutal position, but that's why, you know, capitalism works so well with these labor movements is because, uh, you know, ultimately... They're going to wind up dealing on their on their turf, no matter what they're asking for, because they're asking for a larger piece of a puzzle that is built in their favor. So that was that was the larger point that we're looking to make with the strike episode. Next, we heard from Nathan Sirst, who I actually was thinking about the other day. I was like, where's Nathan been? And then he showed up. Bing. So first off, in this week's episode, I was impressed that you made the distinction between an, an agnostic and an atheist. Even more impressed that you shared you were an atheist. I'm also an atheist and know the challenges that often bring upon those of us who focus on science and evidence over faith. Then a little later, Nathan says, Also, I want to commend you on the recently concluded socialism theory. As you know from my history, this is a subject that I am still challenged to buy into, but the history and context you provided do help me to, th- to better think through some of my positions. I think where I may be different than many of your other listeners is that throughout my 30-plus year career in operations, I've managed thousands of people, Many of them are truly remarkable, and I take great pride in the careers that I've seen built over the years. However, I've seen firsthand too many times people that simply show up and do not want to work, have problem after problem, and are morally corrupt. And then the third point I wanted to call out is how mature I think your views are on the left and how you defend AOC. I find it amazing how often the left attacks their own members, continually wanting to destroy good while pushing for the great. Change happens over generations, and small changes need to be celebrated. So I'll just weigh in quickly on the second point, which is the um, shitty people are everywhere. They're among the elite. They're in the the working classes. They're in businesses. They're they're all around. They're in unions. They're in union leadership. There are shitty people that you that you contend with and you work with. And so you know, and that's what makes it that's what makes it a challenge is that when you speak to somebody that has had a an a, let's say a negative experience with uh, a number of workers group of workers maybe they're you know um in a, in a collective and it winds up destroying a uh, project that you're working on or or what have you or uh how many times you go down and i'm in the middle of trying to pull a permit for something right now as an example and i'm having the hardest fucking time getting this permit done out of a building department for the simplest fucking thing because I'm trying to follow the rules and they're making it really hard for me to follow the rules. And everybody that I've spoken to outside of it, it was just like, we'll just fucking do it and worry about it later. Like, fuck, fuck those guys. The building departments, they're the worst. 
I actually like the people in my building department. Like I like them a lot. And I love the people in our city services and and and, and I have a, a nice relationship with, with everybody. But I can also see the frustration that bureaucracy leads to. And I can understand the, the frustration of somebody that's trying to push through, let's say, I mean, how many times have you heard anecdotes about somebody as a member of a union and somebody there tells them to work to the lowest common denominator because they'll all make you'll make us all look bad. That stuff's real. That happens. But we can't lose the plot when we talk about these things. And I don't think that's what what Nathan is suggesting here is saying that, like, I get it. I dig where you're saying structurally we need to kind of relook at these things because you can get lost in the first hand and the anecdotal uh, and it can kind of steal some thunder away from, you know, your core belief system. You know, when you run into enough shitty people over time, it makes you kind of cynical and not want to do the work to fix structural imbalances, especially when you do it like when, when you're talking about like fixing something that will help people that are diametrically opposed to you in all things in your life. And even though you know it's going to help that person, you still don't have to like that person. Uh, and that's that's, you know, but that's part of working on the structure and on the whole and reminds me of an interview that I saw a long time ago with Sean Penn uh, where somebody was talking to him about uh, his advocacy work and you know it's like you're such a you're known as a guy who's like really difficult to work with and you you, you punch out photographers and you do all this kind of stuff and yet you're probably one of the most humanitarian minded people in Hollywood at the same time and he's all is that true? Oh my God! Yeah, he's an enormous foundation. He's always doing work. Yeah, but he's so does Bill Clinton. No, where he de- he goes and does the work and like fe- like real on the ground work. He's a, he's okay. a, and his thing was, yeah, I I love humanity and hate humans. That's just how I'm hardwired. Mm. And and sometimes that's how I feel. Like you just get so you're just like, oh, I just these people are driving me nuts. But I want to make things better, whether they appreciate it or not. You know. Hmm. Mm. And uh, oh, and then so Sarah N said, thank you to Manny Faces for the thoughtful response. So this was in response to her question about Manny's podcast and his philosophy that hip hop can change America and the good and the goodwill. Uh, save. Did I say change? I think so. I mean, hip- both, but get change the name and right. save and Gosh. all of it. And by the way, congratulations to our very own Manny Faces for winning the Listener's Choice Award in The Signal. Is that true? Yes, it is. I looked through the list and I didn't see it and I got sad, but yeah. maybe I wasn't looking hard yes, enough. Yes, he, he got the most votes from the listeners. And, Fuck yeah. And I call bullshit on Signal because they, uh, they'll they give all the awards to people that are celebrities, you know, because it's a panel of like five celebrity judges that give it to their friends and then they open the rest of it to voting. So it's the Listener Choice winners that really win the signal awards but they give the top names because they have to sell tickets okay to maybe that's why i didn't see it yeah thank you and yes to all that although i do want to say that we were a finalist so we were in the top three of all the music podcasts that were submitted to the signal awards we did actually take uh, the bronze prize so we did kind of win but yes we also did win the listener's choice award which is super dope because that was the one that was like people had to actually vote and one of the other shows was competing and we just had more people so thanks to any of the unfuckers who voted and yeah i'm happy with it plus as you heard i did win the best actor at the oscars so it's all good but congratulations to the manny faces all right men your mission tonight is to stave off the invading forces of the tooth fairy spongebob you watch the east starscream you take the west and many faces, you take Center Patrol since you have many faces. Second year in a row because he won as a producer of Newsbeat last year. Oh, yeah. Kind of a big deal. Look at that. Yep. Our guy. So uh, in response to uh, his assertion that hip hop can save America, 
uh, Sarah N. had written in and just said, you know, there's so many troublesome aspects in her mind about rap culture. And he clarified that in show notes last week. And they actually wound up having a nice little back and forth. So Sarah said, thank you for the thoughtful response. I listened to UNFTR to learn and stay informed. I'm excited to learn more on this topic. We'll be doing a deep dive into resources called out in the podcast. Thank you for addressing this question. Apologies if I asked it in kind of a shitty way. Didn't mean to. You did not. I love hip hop, but the discussion around the way the biggest stars address us, women and LGBTQs, is something I feel. Thank you for your response. Sarah, thank you for your thank you. And again, I totally get it. You did not ask it in a shitty way. I'm happy to talk about it more. And if you follow my other podcast, Hip Hop Can Save America, I guarantee you these will be topics that we'll be touching on in a way that's respectable and journalistic and culturally relevant and without doing it in such a argumentative or salacious manner the way the rest of quote-unquote hip-hop media does. So you came to the right place. I appreciate you. So there you go. All's well that ends well, as long as we continue on the learning journey together. Yeah. And then we heard from Ray Raff, who said, I'm glad someone corrected you on your blue pill, red pill, take 99. Also, for a bit of fun, from Wikipedia, quote, In May 2020, Elon Musk tweeted, Take the red pill, agreeing with a Twitter user that it meant taking a free-thinking attitude and waking up from a normal life, a normal life of sloth and ignorance. Ivanka Trump retweeted the statement saying, Take in. Billy Wykowski, a director of The Matrix, tweeted in response to this exchange, Fuck both of you. I love it. Yeah. And then Rafe Raff sent in some thoughts about Israel-Palestine, which I think we've, we, we talked about it up top. So maybe we save these for next week or show notes yeah, and incorporate that. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. So we might have a better, more nuanced and just answer and discussion after the episode. You bet. Uh, Patrick McGee is back sharing an update on strike activity. Said, looks like the Mack truck workers may be going out on strike after all. Sean Fain had recently declared that the offer they are rejecting is, quote, a record contract for the heavy truck industry. And looking at the details of the Mack Trucks contract, which Sean Fain said is objectively untrue. Also, I see that no new auto worker plants were called to join the strike this past Friday. 83% of workers remain on the job, though a number of non-striking workers have been laid off. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Patrick McGee digging into the nuance of the union tactics against the, 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 uh, the big three auto workers. And they may make, you know, gains. Uh, I think what he's responding to initially is how I uh, characterized um, Sean Fain and said I, I was a fan of his approach to it. But then hopefully it made more sense as uh, as we went on discussing things that I was a fan of how he's approaching things within the context of a system that is just designed to further capitalist gains that but you know i don't we can't take anything away from unions and their activity we just also have to build coalitions on the side that push for general strike activity that push for worker cooperatives and to change the dynamic the capitalism dynamic and the relationship between uh you know workers and the elites so nuance takes all around patrick mcgee thank you for sharing that update so brian c said i was in occupy protest myself in 2011 in Dunedin, Dunedin, New Zealand. It shouldn't be. I don't know, hmm. but sorry. Tell me, send me a voice memo of how to say it. While at uni there, stayed for about three days camping and over several weeks as a daytime visitor. So I understand what you mean about Occupy being a political raison d'etre. Is that good? Did I do it? That's how I say it. People make fun of me. So okay. uh, raison d'etre, raison d'etre. Okay, that one of those moment, so to speak, or perhaps a flashpoint. It's a shame that we can't come together and work in synergy to overthrow our oppressors and reestablish some form of balance in the economic system. The classes shouldn't be this separate. 
and the idea that the wealth of the 1% has increased so exponentially since Occupy, and yet there are no mass protests since, baffles me. Recently, the French rioted over the increase to the retirement of two years. This year, a two-year retirement increase passed without a whisper in Australia. Where does a revolution start in a modern Anglo-Saxon society, places like the USA, UK, and Australia? Are too many of us just too cynical or separated ideologically on things of no importance? Can't stop thinking about what you said recently regarding the moment, the moment that shattered so many of our hopes. Clyburn, Super Tuesday, COVID. That was a heady few days for me and has haunted me since. You're the first person to really reference that moment precisely, and I appreciate being able to hear someone else reflect on it. I haven't felt much strong, sustained hope for democracy and equity since. How do we move forward? The next couple of years are going to be really telling in terms of how we move forward. This next election is just shaping up to be such a fucking disaster. And um, it's one of these. And I, and, I, and I really, again, I don't mean to be too cynical about it, but I do feel like it's it's a it has to get worse before it gets better. When we talk about progressive movements specifically, uh, and that's because we don't have any definitive progressive top of the ballot candidates or issues that are going to be surfaced. So Medicare for all minimum wage, like none of these things that, that we fight for are going to be reflected in this next election period, end of story. And so they'll take a back seat, which is why I do think that it is a very, very good time for progressives to organize on the ground and why I've been so agitated about, you know, kind of fomenting that, that type of, uh, that worldview where if we're, if we are eventually going to take over in the post Bernie top of the ticket universe, we need to be more prepared on the ground with more progressive voices in Congress specifically, but also in state legislatures and all the way down, you know, again, to the precinct level, if we're going to battle the, the dark forces of Bannon's, uh, you know, army. So, um, again, you know, Brian, and I think a lot of progressives feel this way because Cornell West is an example, will be marginalized in this election and his voice is not going to be widespread. In fact, I think his is I think it will be so marginalized in mainstream media that it, even his I think it'll even be a surprise to see his name on the ballot when the election comes around to a lot of people that just won't know otherwise you know, what he stands for or what he's been doing his entire life. I also think that he shot himself in the foot twice now by starting out with People's Party, going to the Green Party, going to the Independence Party. Uh, and it goes back to my argument that whether we're talking about Cornell West or Marianne Williamson or RFK, anybody that you want to put into the political sphere, if you haven't done the groundwork, and this, it, by the way, none of them are reality TV stars. So you can't use the Trump example ever again or or and and nor have we seen it before. He is an outlier. He is he's a he's a complete unicorn when it comes to presidential politics and, and top of the ticket stuff. But when it comes to just how to build a network and a coalition, you have to look at the Bernie example and the fact that it took him decades to get there. Well, we had to press reset now. We have to press reset, but we're not doing it starting at zero like Bernie was. We're doing it starting at 100 within Congress and many, many more within state legislatures that that we don't talk about on a daily basis that are hopefully doing the good work to keep these issues alive. We know that Medicare for all polls very high nationally. We know that responsible gun ownership polls very high, $15 minimum wage, a lot of and, and increasing entitlements, direct child payments, all of these things poll extremely high. It's just not reflected in the mainstream politics and therefore it's not on the ballot anymore. But we can get it on the ballot if we take over all of the instances that actually determine 
who is on the top of the ticket down the road. Uh, but this next this next couple of years is going to be fucking dark. There's just no two ways about it. Now, moving on to Dan M., who was actually responding to the barbershop anecdote that, uh, that I shared in the newsletter and a little bit in show notes last week. He said, greetings, comrades. Love the socialism part six show notes, not because you acknowledge my input, which I appreciate, of course, and you owe me nothing, but because there's so much commentary there to which I relate. As a quick side trip, I recognize that the bros in your barbershop story as these are the peeps that I work with every day. I think I've previously mentioned that I work for an energy producer. When I travel for work, I feel like I'm trapped in your barbershop for a week at a time. Humor aside, there's a real value in relationships with these guys, overwhelmingly male, and getting out of my bubble as it challenges my assumptions and forces me to recognize the full humanity and value of these people and to deal earnestly with their motivations and positions. There are shards of facts in their perspectives and often their motives and desires are more often than not pure, even if they've gone off the rails many miles back. That is such a, I mean, that is essentially the encapsulation of our meet people where they are feeling. We all kind of start out in the same place. Where we get to is a product of your environment, of, of your family, of the circumstances, certainly your geography, your economic circumstances, all of those things. And they, they contribute to building your perspective as a person. And if your perspective is, and, and I think you're being, Dan, I think you're, you're actually being very generous here in recognizing, because I don't think that the treatment is the same on the way back necessarily. Uh, but that is what makes us progressive. That is what makes us, I believe, more open and less closed off to change and to hearing people's perspectives. So, um, well done you and, um, you know, sit next to you in the barbershop anytime. After reading the newsletter and hearing Manny's punch in, I apologize for teasing you about the barbershop. <laughs> no, you don't. Yes, I do. It was good natured. It was fun. Yeah, but. I didn't take it as, uh, as crit. I actually, I didn't take it as critical. I wasn't being critical. I was just teasing you, but I didn't take in consideration the sentimental value and also cultural value. So I apologize. Okay. Well, well taken, but unnecessary. And thanks. You're welcome. All right. So we are jumping over to Facebook with sort of just a little update. Um, there is a ton of activity in the group. If you're not yet a part of it, search for Unfuckers at all with an asterisk for the second UN Unfuckers. Or you can just go to uh, the UNFTR Facebook page and click the groups thing. We have a note here that the moderators will let you in, but it is a public group. You do not. I keep meaning to tell you that. You don't have oh. to be. I don't think you have to be. Uh, approved. You're just automatically taken in? I think so. Okay. Like you but can you can f- get kicked out for being an asshole. Right? Yes. Okay. I could be wrong, but uh, but you can, like, if you searched it in incognito, you could find it. I just assumed that, um, oh, that you can view it. Yeah. Oh, oh, neat. Yeah. So. Oh, well, join everybody. Yeah, exactly. Well, some of the stuff that was happening there, yes, by you. the way, was Maria from Puerto Rico paddling in the blue Puerto Rican waters in her UNFTR bucket hat, as an example, which was freaking adorable. Jen S was looking for a little luck, but we don't know for what. Jen S, you got to let us know what you were looking for and, and, and if everything worked out. And uh, and there were a few requests from UNFTL stall, stall, stalwarts, like Maria from Puerto Rico, Will, hold for it. Piss off, William Wallace. What? What? Watkins, Brian M, Aaron N, Knudsen, uh, for new UNFTR oval stickers to replace the very weathered and tested former stickers that we had. So. Yeah. There was even some... Uh... I saw a little fighting. Did you see that? I saw a little fighting in there. A little bit. Yeah. yeah I know what she's talking about. Yeah. 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 Little, little test. Yeah. Maybe. A little intrigue. Don't fight. Oh. Don't fight. Just keep it. Yeah. Just keep it cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Keep you it know, for it. It's all good. Keep it cool. Keep it relevant. Yeah. Keep it fun. Yeah. Over right. to YouTube. Yeah. Um, let's go through these uh, rapid fire. No commentary. We'll just read them out. Hello, 1814 commented on the socialism series and said, great stuff. Thanks. Do you have a big whiteboard in front of you to speak from? Nope, but it is a teleprompter. <laughs> Don't tell them that. <laughs> that's giving away the secret. Uh, Jeremy commented on the rise of Matt Gates video and said, yes, chaos is the point, but I think imbuing Gates with a sinister planning and forward thinking abilities might be a step too far. I'll agree in a couple of points. Gates is smarter than he appears, and our collective memory as, Repu- as Republicans, yikes, <laughs> reverse Freudian slip, and our uh, our collective memory as Americans is so short. We won't see the Republican-driven path that instability is caused by Republicans. However, it is hard for me to see him being any more than a bit player in a larger scheme. Fair, but also, to your point, he is smarter than he appears. Strain 601 on the rise of Matt Gates said, To everyone watching, please remember that whoever the Republicans or Democrats choose to be Speaker of the House... The candidate does not have to be a sitting member of Congress, even though he's in over his comb-over in lawsuits. The Republicans still might pick Trump or someone like him. That's wild. Robert J. said, Another great video, Max, but I'm not sure I buy into the overall Repub clown show spilling over into some sort of Democratic Party fragmentation just because the hard-up media, particularly cable, is always trying and giving the clowns all the airtime they want, which is far more than warranted by any journalistic standard. Yep, and Torrential Rage said it really speaks volumes how much Gates stands out among the Republicans, a crowd of absolute ghouls. He legitimately scares me. And on to coffee donations, starting out with, oh, Nathan Surst. Max, I have so much respect for the way you handled the listener that told you last week he is no longer listening due to your last podcast, not being progressive enough. As one of your more right-leaning listeners, it is ironic that I still remain, despite hearing you talk of progressive listeners that have left over the years. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate you. Uh, someone, and now we know who because we read it out before, bought three coffees and said thank you to Manny Faces for the thoughtful response. Thank you, Sarah. That's right. Uh, Great Lakes lover, Swim Fish Drink, bought three coffees. That was no commentary necessary, just tipping the crew. And uh, now we have some membership news. We got Leanne R., who's a member, and this one's fun. Today is my 65th birthday. This is a gift to myself. A friend introduced me to UNFTR over a year ago, and I've listened to every episode while walking through the neighborhood of my city. Hands down, my favorite podcast. Thank you for all your insightfulness, enlightenment, entertainment, and making me think. I worry about what I'm leaving for my six-year-old grandson. Maybe I've gleaned some wisdom from the podcast to pass on to him. Yep, I'm one of those boomers, but a progressive boomer. I so look forward to each and every episode. Leanne, thank you for becoming a member. Welcome to the fold, and happy birthday. And then Jason S. became an over-caffeinated member. Insert air horn sounds. Did Leanne R. also become an over-caffeinated member? Oh my God, she did. Wow. How dare you? Insert air horn sounds twice. I know. It was amazing. Extraordinary. Yeah. So Jason S. said, I've listened to every UNFTR episode and Max, I've rarely felt so akin to another curiosity and hypothesis as yours. Lastly, even though this email was mostly directed at Max, it's meant as an appreciation of all three of you. The show wouldn't exist or be nearly as good without 99 and Manny. So thank you both for making UNFTR and keeping Max humble-ish. Aww. <laughs> then we got a couple of reviews. Um, so one from Lady Reverb, who said, started listening earlier this year, just stumbled upon it since I listen and keep an eye out for intelligent leftist podcasts. And now I look forward to it so much. As a socialist and a third generation socialist at that, I really enjoyed the Understanding Socialism series all during the summer and up to the present. Not that the material in history was completely new for me, but I appreciated the wide lens that Max took, even including anarchist thinkers who are often underrated. 
I also enjoy the more current and topical pods as well. Highly recommend. Keep up the great work. And then GRS100 said, been with you in FTR for quite a while now, and they just keep turning out excellent content and keep it fun to boot. They're winning podcasting going away just for you, 99. <laughs> it's a great way to end. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you. We know this is a, another long one, uh, and we will be back. If everything goes according to uh, schedule, we'll see you this weekend with a phone a friend Yay. that I think everybody's going to love. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.